0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we get filled in on the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam with Dr. Annalise Bloom, a Policy Fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Annalise has worked for years on technical and geopolitical aspects of hydropower, and we ask her about this controversial project on the Blue Nile River in Ethiopia. The Renaissance Dam, which could begin filling as soon as this week, has been the subject of international negotiations for years, and even included some threats of armed conflict. It's a complex and important issue that's little discussed here in the U.S. To find out more, stay with us. Okay, Dr. Annalise Bloom, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So Annelise, we're going to talk today about the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam, which uh, I know very little about, but I, the little I know is incredibly interesting and intriguing, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation. But before we get into the details, can you just briefly give us a sense of how you got interested in working on environmental issues?
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I think I've really been interested in environmental issues for as long as I can remember. Um, But I think one experience that was really formative was I actually went to third grade in Monteverde, Costa Rica. My mom was writing a book and she wanted me to learn Spanish. Um, And I went to the Cloud Forest School there, which has a mission to nurture ecologically aware bilingual students. But when I arrived, my friends who were Costa Rican had actually already become fluent in English and so (laughs) I didn't end up learning as much Spanish as I had hoped. But I did become really interested in environmental protection. Um, And then in high school, I became really interested in water issues, writing a paper about the Ganges River. And I found the ways culture and politics and science and economics and religion intersected so fascinating. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of similar intersections, working on the Bay Delta in California. And and I worked in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Borbon, Ecuador on some projects related to drinking water um, and sanitation. And all of those experiences really helped me realize the ways that environmental protection, and human welfare are connected. And and that's really been the focus of my work and trying to inform improve policy um, to make sure that people in the environment have enough water and are protected from floods. So my PhD was in environmental and water resources engineering. And I focused on characterizing streamflow variability and ecological impacts and then did a postdoc at Johns Hopkins. And there, my advisor, Ben Zaychak, really got me started working on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, um, and it was a really interesting topic that got me excited about all of these complicated issues.
0: Yeah. So the dam that we're gonna talk about today is a dam that is being constructed or potentially being constructed on the Nile River. Uh, I think we all know that the Nile runs through Egypt, um, but uh, certainly for me, it's not a great geographer. Um, I think it's the world's longest river. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but can you just give us a basic understanding of the importance of the river in terms of sustaining livelihoods and agriculture in Northeastern Africa?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, it it seems there's some controversy over whether the Nile River or the Amazon is longer, but we don't have to get into that. And it's certainly one of the longest in the world, probably the longest um, and extremely important to the countries it flows through. Um, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia in particular, all really rely on Nile River flows for water uses like agriculture, human consumption and industrial use. And Egypt doesn't have many other sources of water. Um, depending how you count it, they might get 90% of their water from the Nile. And most of that comes from the Blue Nile, which originates in Ethiopia. Um, so once the Blue Nile flows from Ethiopia into Sudan, it combines with the White Nile in Khartoum to become the Nile. And from there, it flows north into Egypt.
0: Great. And so it's a, yeah, I mean, it just sounds like it's central to life, uh, particularly in Egypt, but also in, in the regions where it flows through in Sudan and in Ethiopia. Yes. Yeah. So, the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam, let's start talking about that. And uh, I I think I might call it the Renaissance Dam just for simplicity, but you can correct me if that's a a problem. It's a really controversial issue um, that I hadn't known about until just a couple months ago. And it's a project being developed in Ethiopia, primarily to generate electricity. So can you give us just some basics of the scale and scope of the dam itself? For example, how much electricity would it generate? How big would it be? And what are some of the ecological and social impacts uh, that could occur from filling the reservoir behind the dam?
1: Sure, yeah. So when the dam is complete, it'll be the largest hydropower dam in Africa. Um, and it's expected to be 509 feet high, just over a mile long, and to have a volume of 60 million acre feet. And there are a range of different estimates of the electricity that is expected to be generated. Um, uh, The projected capacity from Ethiopia is 6,000 megawatts, which will more than double Ethiopia's current power generation capacity. Um, And in terms of social and ecological impacts of filling the reservoir, it's been estimated that the reservoir will flood an area of over 700 square miles. Um, And according to the Ethiopian government, 3,700 households will be displaced. For context, the Three Gorges Dam in China displaced over a million people. So Egypt is really concerned about reductions in Nile flow, both when the reservoir is initially filled and then during long-term operations that can negatively impact Egyptian agriculture and water supply. Um, Fortunately, reservoir filling during wet years can be felt less acutely downstream. And so that's the work um, that I helped with on the dam, in particular forecasting inflows to the reservoir to provide a shared understanding of likely conditions each summer. So the rain, most of the rain in the region, uh, this region of Western Ethiopia falls during June through September, and so during these summer months is the best time to fill the reservoir. So working with colleagues at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, UC Santa Barbara, and Johns Hopkins, where I did my postdoc, we created what we called the Ad Hoc Blue Nile Forecast Group, um, and have been doing seasonal precipitation and streamflow forecasting into the reservoir for each year starting in 2018. And that was a year people thought that the reservoir might begin to be filled by Ethiopia and it didn't happen. Um, so we've been doing forecasts each year. And really a common regional understanding of how much water is available is a first step towards cooperatively managing the river. But making these seasonal predictions is particularly challenging scientifically just because of the time scale. Yeah. And then making it even more challenging, there's evidence to suggest that relationships That we've been using between climatological predictors of precipitation in the region might have begun to change starting around 2000.
0: Hmm. And is that potentially an impact of climate change or not sure?
1: Yeah, potentially.
0: Yeah, interesting. So you mentioned a couple times the uh, sort of timeline during which the reservoir could begin to fill. Um, Can you give us a sense of the current status of the project's construction? I I read news reports um, just in the last week or so uh, that suggested the reservoir could start to fill as early as this week uh, because it's the rainy season right now in Ethiopia.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. They expected the dam to be completed by now. Originally, I think 2017 was the year they thought it would be done, but there have been a number of delays. Um, But even with the dam not completed, Ethiopia can start filling the reservoir. Um, And so actually in previous years, the builders worked on sides of the dam and now the middle section is complete. So Nile river flow goes through bypass channels at the foot of the structure. And as you mentioned with the rainy season, um, there's increased river flows and it's turning out to be a wet year. And so you'd expect water to start backing up behind the dam, even with the bypass channels open. Um, And so not surprisingly, there have been a number of news stories the past few days. They have satellite images showing that water is backing up behind the dam. Um, Ethiopia has confirmed the images, but they said that this buildup is just due to heavy rains and that they haven't taken any action to close the sluice gates, which would lead to permanent impoundment of the water. Um, But then Sudan's irrigation minister has said that water levels on the Blue Nile below the dam have begun declining, suggesting that Ethiopia has closed the gates of the dam. Mm,
0: Interesting. And we should point out that this is very much an evolving issue, right? It's like day to day, we're getting updates and news stories. So it's possible that some of the information we're talking about today could be a little bit out of date. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely happening right now.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, so so we're going to focus more on the big picture now rather than trying to understand the snapshot of what's happening at this very moment. Um, Can you give us a sense of what are the main motivations for the Ethiopian government uh, in building this dam? Obviously, the generation of uh, electricity doubling their power capacity, that's got to be a huge motivator. Um, but are there other you know, major factors at play for the government? And also, what's the perception of the project inside Ethiopia? My, again, casual reading on the topic uh, has led me to think that it's, it's a very popular project and that it's sort of seen as a patriotic endeavor uh, by many Ethiopians.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're really right on that. Um, the, the main motivation the Ethiopian government has given for building the dam is power production to increase electrification, accelerate industrialization and, and to sell power to neighboring countries. And the Ethiopians feel the dam is essential to moving a lot of the country out of poverty. Um, and as you mentioned, extremely popular um, within the country and seen as a point of national pride and self-determination. And the dam has been estimated to cost more than $4 billion, but was self-financed by Ethiopia. So they sold bonds, and there's reporting to suggest that some workers contributed a fixed portion of their paychecks every month to fund the dam. Um, And it's, yeah. Also interesting to note, Ethiopia is a really highly divided country. So actually, this dam is a huge issue that is able to unify different ethnic groups across the country.
0: That's interesting. So within the country, there are considerable divides along ethnic lines or maybe political lines, but there is yeah, strong unification behind this project. Uh, you know, just That's maybe a little bit of information from the Ethiopian perspective, uh, but when we think about uh, the perspective from Egypt or Sudan, uh, the dam might be seen quite differently. So can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the concerns that those other countries and maybe Egypt in particular have voiced uh, with regard to the project?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's been very uh, contentious. Egypt has declared the dam to be an existential threat, including at a U.N. Security Council meeting a few weeks ago. Um, And there are lots of news stories with reporting that. And Egypt has warned that that filling the reservoir will heighten tensions and could provoke destabilizing regional conflict. And actually, so back in 2013, The Egyptians were in a government meeting um, and didn't realize that they were on live TV and were recorded proposing military action against Ethiopia over the dam. Um, But the real issue is Egypt relies on the Nile for the vast majority of their water supply and and they're really worried about Ethiopia having greater control over that. Um, In particular, Egypt is concerned about meeting water demands of their growing population which is already a challenge and expected to become even more uncertain and difficult with climate change. And specifically, Egypt has expressed um, substantial concern over how the dam is going to be managed and whether it'll be detrimental to water supply, particularly during droughts. Um, that's something that is a contentious issue, how will limited available water be managed? And how will hardship, if there is a drought, be allocated across Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan um, are some big issues that haven't been resolved. and But there are also impacts on Sudan, um, both positive and negative. And Sudan's kind of caught in the middle, both literally geographically and, and figuratively with, with all of this. Um, Sudan relies on flood, recession, agriculture, and Changing the variability of the Blue Nile flows into Sudan is likely to have big impacts on that Um, it could also be detrimental to fish populations, which are really sensitive to temperature So if water is released from the dam only from the bottom gates that water could be really cold um, Which can be problematic for fish But there are also benefits to Sudan um, of the dam that have been raised, uh, they could mitigate harmful flooding, control sediment, and possibly even expand irrigation opportunities in Sudan.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. You mentioned one term that I uh, that I wasn't familiar with, which is flood recession agriculture. I'm guessing in my head what that means, but if you could just explain it, that would be useful.
1: Yeah, I I also am not an expert, but from what I understand, pulses of flood waters is key to the the productivity of those crops.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm sort of imagining like the Mississippi Delta in the US, right? And before it was as levied and dammed as it is today, there would be kind of regular floods that would help nourish the soil. Is that kind of the right concept to be thinking about?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good explanation.
0: Okay, great. I hope, Certainly, uh, listeners, please don't quote me on that because I'm the furthest thing from a hydrologist or a soil expert. But um, hopefully that at least gets us in the ballpark. So now that we have a sense of kind of the geography, the pros and cons from different parties' perspectives, can you tell us a little bit more about the negotiations that have been going on for, for a number of years? Um, in particular, just, you know, give us a sense of what the current status is today, who some of the intermediaries are, and what some of the major steps on the timeline have been.
1: Yeah, um, so it's been a long process. Uh, Ethiopia announced the project in 2011 and over almost the last decade, they've had tripartite talks between Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan. Um, in 2015, the countries signed a declaration of principles, which included ones on cooperation and not to cause significant harm. And at the time, Ethiopia's prime minister said he wanted to reassure the other countries that the dam wouldn't significantly harm downstream users' water rights. Um, and the talks have really ramped up in the last year as um, there are concerns that the reservoir would begin to be filled. Uh, talks have been hosted recently by the U.S., the World Bank, and the African Union. Um, and as I mentioned, there was this um, discussion about the topic at the U.N. Security Council Uh, They've made a lot of progress, so 90% of the technical issues have been reported to be resolved, and these include things like first filling of the reservoir, dam safety, um, environmental and social issues, and exchange of data, Um, but there's still a number of issues that haven't been resolved on how the dam will be operated during droughts, as I mentioned, or the binding nature um, of whether the legal agreement will be binding, um, dispute resolution mechanisms, um, and so the African Union is actually continuing to lead talks, I think, as we speak.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And the U.S. is participating as a an observer in, in that process, or a participant, or can you characterize kind of the U.S. role?
1: Sure, yeah. So the U.S. hosted talks back in January and February. Um, I think it was the U.S. and the World Bank together.
0: Great, that's helpful. So um, if we think about, um, you know, what's going to happen in the next few weeks or perhaps the next few years, can you talk a little bit about the potential consequences um, in geopolitical or or other terms uh, if Ethiopia were to begin filling the dam uh, before an agreement is actually reached?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. And I'm a little hesitant to to speculate, but um, someone I've had a lot of interesting conversations about the dam with and about this topic is Aaron Salzberg, who's now the director of the Water Institute at UNC, and um, has talked a lot about some of the ways more generally to approach thinking about these sort of questions. So you can think through possible consequences as four options a country that's concerned about threats to its national security might respond. Um, First, they can try to resolve it diplomatically, which has been happening with the tripartite talks since 2011, um, through... Um, international organizations, like going to the UN Security Council, which happened a few weeks ago. And then if neither of those work, two remaining options are to engage kinetically or engage covertly. Um, Obviously, the ideal is countries find a cooperative solution. um, And I'd expect a country in Egypt's place would respond in a way to defend their national strategic interest. But But really, I should mention, historically, tension over shared water bodies between countries has more often led to cooperation than to conflict, Um, and I really recommend research um, by researchers like Aaron Wolf at Oregon State University have done a lot of interesting work on these topics, Um, but still, there's no question that it would be better if um, there was an agreement, a completed agreement in place before filling of the dam began.
0: Right. And just to, to make sure I understand the, the terminology, when you say kinetic engagement, that's sort of overt military engagement. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So obviously something that, you know, one would want to avoid.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so uh, last question now before we go to our uh, top of the stack question, which is kind of big picture and also... hits on uh, the comment you just made about uh, historic international examples of cooperation. So obviously there have been lots of dams developed over the years that have um, cross-border consequences, both for, let's say, states in the U.S. and for different nations around the world. Uh, are there precedents that you look to or think of uh, that can help provide models for good cooperation um, that can lead to you know, satisfactory outcomes for both parties that kind of can help guide this discussion and that, um, however difficult it might be, can at least provide some uh, reference for good outcomes in the past?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, really, any agreement um, would be a good one. <laughs> but yeah, there there are a few examples. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. and Mexico signed a treaty on the Colorado River back in 1944 um, and give an example of how countries can work together against constraints of infrastructure and institutions that were built decades ago um, and how they are adapting to changing conditions. Um, So the the countries have built on the framework, um, the original framework, with additional agreements that address salinity issues and have taken steps to benefit ecosystems. Um, And then last year, finalized an agreement on how to handle potential water shortages on the river in the face of severe drought, which experts predict will become increasingly likely with climate change, unfortunately. Um, And then another example often cited as a success story, at least when it comes to cooperation between upstream and downstream um, countries is the 1964 Columbia River Treaty between the U.S. and Canada. Um, And the treaty coordinates flood control and optimizes uh, electrical energy production in the Columbia River Basin. And reports say that it's increased both of the benefits for both countries, so um, seen as uh, somewhat of a success story in that respect. But one aspect that isn't helpful for this lesson that may have been helpful is the U.S. and Canada then were discussing um, this agreement before construction of the three dams governed by the treaty actually began. Um, and and some other places that, that had some successes include um, in the Mekong where the states sharing the river have shared information and some upstream users have tried to modify dam operations uh, to appease downstream countries.
0: Great. So, Annalise Bloom, thank you so much for telling us about the uh, the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam. It's such a fascinating project, so complex. There's such an amazing history that, like, I know very little about, but you, I've scratched the surface and I can kind of see how deep it goes. So, I would encourage uh, others to to learn more about it as well. So let's ask now uh, our final question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. Uh, and I'll get us started with something that's actually probably it's on the bottom of my reading stack. It's something I read maybe 10 years ago when I first moved to Los Angeles in a previous phase of my life. Um, the book is called William Mulholland and the Rise of Los Angeles. It's written by uh, his granddaughter, Catherine Mulholland. Uh, for those of you who have never heard of William Mulholland, he was a engineer who worked to uh, help provide Southern California with uh, water supply, coming from Northern California and elsewhere. Um, And there's a lot of really fascinating history around that, really troubling history in some cases. Um, But the book is really, it's kind of a history of Los Angeles uh, in the San Fernando Valley uh, and other uh, Southern California. You know, parts of William Mulholland's life are kind of fictionalized in the movie Chinatown, which is one of my favorite movies. And um, it's just a fascinating book to learn about the development of water resources in the American West. Um, so I was thinking about that in preparation for our conversation today. But Annalise, how about you? What's on the top of your stack?
1: Well, that sounds really interesting. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to look into that. Um, I guess so. For me, uh, I recently watched a movie called Timbuktu, 2, um, which focuses on the occupation of Timbuktu, Mali by an Islamist group, but is also really about the challenges of managing scarce water resources between different groups, including herders, farmers, and fishermen. Um, And I saw it recently, but it's from a few years ago and actually was nominated for uh, Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, I think back in 2015. Um, And it's fiction, but I found that I really enjoy historical fiction and I know earlier I mentioned how competition over shared water bodies has more often led to cooperation than to conflict, but that's at the country level, and exploring this um, this issue at the subnational level is really complicated as well, and often that's where you see more of this conflict over scarce water resources, and it can be a real problem, especially in places highly dependent on agriculture, like in Mali. Um, and where there are also nomadic herders who, who need somewhere um, for their animals to drink. So determining water rights and allocation of resources between the two groups can get really complicated. Um, and then bringing in these extremist groups who can take advantage of natural resource challenges to strengthen divisions between the groups and try to recruit new members. Um, and so it's something I've been learning more about. And I found the way the film explored some of the issues really insightful and personal. And it was nice to get this kind of human face to all of it and better understand how competition over scarce natural resources um, might contribute to conflict. And it seems like sometimes environmental challenges are a little impersonal and having that human face on the, the ways that environmental stressors Potentially accelerate instability and risk of conflict uh, was really interesting. Um, And just showing how consideration of these topics, um, thinking about water security and environmental security, are really essential to ensuring human and even national security as well.
0: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And so the movie's called Timbuktu. Is it available on streaming services?
1: Yeah, I think I watched it on Amazon. Right.
0: Yep. All right. So we'll make sure to put a link to it on uh, in the show notes. And one more question. You said it was a fictional film, but if memory serves, it is true that there was an extremist takeover of the, the city of Timbuktu a number of years back, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's historical fiction. Um, yes, it, it's based on a true story. Um, I think the actual individual um, people are not real characters, but um, yeah, based on a real event.
0: That's fascinating. All right, well, that's going right in my my movie queue for the next week or so. So Great. thanks for that recommendation. <laughs> Great. Well, one more time, Annalise Bloom, uh, thank you so much for joining us, talking to us about hydropower, geopolitics, and so many other fascinating issues around this particular dam. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much. This has been fun.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute. We'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.com org the views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants they do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future which does not take institutional positions on public policies resources radio is produced by elizabeth wasson with music by me daniel ramey join us next week for another episode